Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 504. It is Friday, that means we're doing a call-in Friday. If you're downloading this show today... Uh, rather than over the weekend, which a lot of guys do with the uh, Friday shows. Uh, you might notice it's published a little bit late. That's because I had some computer gremlins to deal with this morning. No kind of infections or nasties or anything. Just uh, a little bug trying to download uh, and strip out the uh, audio from a YouTube video that just wouldn't work. And I had to do a few things to get a workaround. Something was funky with this video, but I finally got the audio off. And it's Peter Schiff. And he's talking about a time bomb waiting in the banks that I wanted to finish the show up with. And I thought it was, when I heard it and I understood the implications, I thought it was really important that you guys knew about this. Uh, so along with uh, eight or nine of your calls today, we're also going to have Peter Schiff wrap the show up for us today. So it took later to publish because of that. On that note, we are ready to go now. And I do want to go ahead and knock this out for you so I can get it published out there for you to download and hear back from yourselves in the audience I have pretty much wiped out the backlog on calls. I've got calls today that came in this week. I have lots of room now. If you want to be on the show, call 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. It's a toll-free call in the United States and Canada. And uh, you can uh, call in, give me your question, your thoughts, your comments, what have you, and maybe you'll hear yourself on the air. Please get direct and to the point with it. That'll make it more likely that we'll use your call. <clears throat> Before we get into your questions, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is my go-to source for anything in the herbal world, uh, from whole herbs to pre-made herbal preparations to if I want to know something, I get in touch with them and they help me uh, put together what I'm looking to put together. If it's legal and it's herbal, you can buy it at Western Botanicals. I'll put it to you that way. About the only thing you cannot find there would be things that are not legal. Uh, don't take that the wrong way. There's nothing there you probably want to smoke or anything like that. I'm just making the point of how extensive their selection of whole herbs is and how reasonably priced they are. They also have a great discount program. $50 a year gives you 25% off everything you ever buy from them. 25% off everything. If you're a member support brigade member, you get that for free. So that tells you that that one benefit alone uh, covers the cost and expense of your members brigade membership. Make sure if you are members brigade, you're using that one. All you can do is make a phone call and they set you up. All right. Um, <clears throat> next up today is Safe Castle Royal, one of our really long-term and extremely supportive uh, sponsors. They also give away a $29 discount membership to all members of the member support brigade completely for free. Um, that's really, really cool as well. So these two guys, I like when they kind of sync up together on the show because they give me a good case to you for why you should be MSP. But as for, as for why you should deal with Safe Castle, I mean, you know, the thing about Safe Castle <clears throat> is the owner there, Vic, how much effort he puts in to make sure he's offering things that really fit for you guys, uh, fit for his customer base. He actually put together a board 
of advisors that look at the things that he's doing and say, hey, I think you should add this or get rid of that. And let me tell you, he listens because he had a product that I tried out. I used it. I didn't think it worked very well. And I said, hey, man, I don't like this product. It doesn't seem to work very well. He said, let me sell you another one for free. And I had the same problem with it. He said, okay, that's it. Out of the store, gone. And uh, that tells you, I mean, he's trying to make sure that he does the right things for you. And he's put together a board of folks. I mean, I'm on that board. Ron Hood's on that board. Uh, MMA fighter Raleigh Degato's on that uh, on that board. It's it's really uh, a great group of guys that uh, that he you know compensates annually just to make sure he's doing the right thing. That tells you he's a good guy to do business with for everything from long-term storable foods to tools to solar equipment. You name it, he's got it. And uh, they also build some of the greatest hardened shelters I've ever seen. So check out Safe Castle. Uh, next up, make sure you connect with us uh, via our social media platforms, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks to all of you who helped me kick Brian Black's butt in our recent little uh, friendly game. We're going to be videotaping Brian doing 50 push-ups, or 100 push-ups, that's right. And... Uh, you know, if you like ITS, if you think they're a good website, and I do, ITSTactical.com, great website. Now that we've won, go ahead and like their Facebook page, too, if you use Facebook. If you don't use Facebook and you don't want to hear me talk about Facebook, the button is fast-forward. All right, that's just for one or two people that have whined by email. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Uh, do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members, uh, discounts to great vendors like the two that I've just mentioned, a whole bunch of free ebooks and some other great stuff. Uh, I think there might be one or two people that can still slip by with the discount code I gave out yesterday, which is the word iTunes, which gets your first year for 25 bucks. I think I set up for eight of those. I think six of them were used as of this morning, so there's actually two more. I don't know if they'll last until I publish this, but you can give it a shot. Uh, one real quick mention, I am doing a business podcast now. For those of you that want to know how I turned survivalpodcast.com into the business it has become, uh, that is called 5 Minutes with Jack. It's available by audio on iTunes and video on the website at jackspirico.com. With that, let's go ahead and get into your questions. I have some great ones this week. You guys are really awesome. And again, I want to throw it out there one more time. I'm almost out of calls. I'm almost completely out of calls, man. I, I need you guys to make some calls in the next few days so that I can do this again on Friday next week or I'll have to uh, go find more stuff on YouTube. Uh, I'd rather it be you guys. So 866-65-THINK, toll-free call. Be direct with your question. You get two minutes to uh, make your point, make your question heard. And if you listen to the folks today, these are folks that did it right. This is how you get on the air. Let's go ahead and take that first question. Hey, Jack, it's Craig, username Nanderdeck on the forum. Love the show, as always. You're the man. Uh, question for you about a permaculture question. Regarding planting fruit and trees, um, kind of looked around online, couldn't really come up with a concise answer, and maybe this is an old wives' tale, but I've heard that a majority of people will t typically plant you know, apple trees, pear trees, what have you, in the spring. I've also heard people tell me that it's sometimes ideal to plant them in the fall because they won't necessarily be, you know, expending their energy planting or, you know, growing fruit, but more um, growing their root structure. Uh, so I wanted to find out what your take was on that, if you thought that maybe that was a, you know, interesting spin on it, if, if you had any personal experience from it. Uh, because up at our, uh, our, our bug out location, I'm looking at putting in some permaculture, apple trees and pear trees, what have you. And um, the thinking is, is it something I should wait till spring to do or if something I should get started digging holes now come fall since we're in August. Uh, so uh, looking forward to hearing your answer. And as always, keep going, doing what you're doing, man. Thanks. Bye. 
Well, good question there, Craig, also known as Nanodeck on the forums. I love the guys that don't need to be anonymous completely anyway, because no one's really anonymous. But anyway, um, good question, and there is some basic rules of thumb here. Number one, when you plant trees in the fall and they're in a dormant state, uh, they're not doing a whole lot of growing one way or another. They're not growing roots. They're not growing anything. They're just sitting there waiting for spring to kind of kick on the growth spurt. If you do plant in the fall, and if you have trees that have been, let's say, less than a year in the ground and you come in the fall, uh, you really need to make sure you're watering them somewhat throughout the winter. Nowhere near as much as you do in the first couple of years in the spring, in the summer, during growth, but they do need some water. Once a tree is established, unless it's a really, really dry fall winter, uh, they're usually fine on their own through the fall and winter. But I just wanted to throw that in there as well. The basic rules are this. If you're going to plant bare-rooted trees, you want to plant them uh, in early spring. Uh, and that's really when you want to plant them. And that's that's. A, I've never tested whether that theory is true or not. I've never tried to plant a bare-rooted tree uh, in the middle of summer. I've never tried to plant one in the fall. But the basic rules are you plant bare-rooted trees in the spring. If the tree is in a pot or in a burlap sack full of dirt, if it's surrounded with dirt, the rules are you plant it whenever the hell you want to. And it doesn't really make a hill of beans a difference. Now, I would tell you this. I would be comfortable planting trees in the fall that are that, are that way as long as you're making sure they're getting watered some. Um, and again, you got a lot more rain in the fall in the winter and early spring. So all through that season, not that big a deal. So I would plant... A tree that is in a pot or any, in any way, you know, healthy, growing, active tree or gone to dormancy through normal seasonal change any time of the year, except I would not plant it in late, late spring coming into to the summertime or in the middle of summer because it's too hot and there's too much damn stress. If I had a tree in a pot during that period of time, uh, I would leave it in a pot so that if it does become too stressed due to heat, I can move it somewhere, give it some partial shade, things like that, and I would hold off on planting it until fall. Other than that, I would plant it any time that they that you know exactly where you want it to be. And remember one thing with trees. When you plant them, they're going to get bigger than they were when you put them in the ground. And people have a propensity to plant them too close to things or too close together. So be careful with that. Also, when you're planting any kind of tree that's been in a pot, um, you need to be careful that you don't later on kill your tree with something called circling and girdling root syndrome. So what you want to do is you pull that tree out of the pot and you want to, you know, sometimes hitting with a garden hose is a great way to break all that dirt off of there. You want to get all the dirt out of the roots. And any of the roots that have extended all the way out to the edge of the pot and have started to run in a circle around the pot, you either want to prune them off or stretch them out and get them broken from that circular pattern. What can happen is one or two big main root shafts that have started that circular pattern around the pot if they're allowed to continue that, they don't do anything to harm your tree in the first few years. But they continue to grow in a circle because they've been trained that way. Just like you could train a bonsai tree to be small, or you could train a branch on a tree to grow in a spiral, or any other pattern you want. Once that pattern is established, a tree generally will continue to follow it. It works with roots as well. So now I've got a root that goes in a circle around the trunk of my tree. Years later, my tree's expanded, the trunk is all big and beautifully healthy, and all of a sudden, my tree starts to get sick, and I can't save it. I can't figure out what's wrong with it. And it just dies. I wonder what the hell happened. Well, what's happened is that root has formed a circle around the trunk, and the tree has grown into the root. And it's almost like somebody came in and took a hard wire 
and t tightly wired it around your trunk of your tree. And as the tree continued to expand and the wire went inside, it cuts through what's called the cambium, which is the, the actual layer of live material between the bark and the, and the core of the tree where most of the nutrient flow is. And once that's cut off, your tree gets sick and or dies. It, it, even if it lives, it will never produce and grow and be as healthy as it should if it's got roots growing into itself. If you can think about just the shape of a pot and the way that works out. So that's another thing to be careful of when you're planting trees. Otherwise, you know, other than bare-rooted trees, my understanding is those need to be planted in the spring. Um, anything else, go ahead and plant it whenever you feel the, uh, the need to do so. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, how you doing? This is Hef uh, from Florida. And I was just wondering, uh, we're looking to purchase land, and we have no idea what questions we should ask. What are good questions to ask them? Uh, the uh, realtor, for example, taxes in the town, if they allow uh, mobile homes, if they allow airships, which we're looking to do. Um, I know we have to ask about sewage and electricity, uh, but what other, I, I must be missing something. So any help would be appreciated. Thanks, man. I love the show, too. Okay, well, a, a couple things here. One, you're already on the right track because you're starting to ask the right questions already. Um, more important than what you ask a, a realtor or a seller when you're looking for land is starting out with what questions do you ask yourself. You need to ask yourself what you want this land to be. You need to ask yourself what you want it to be for the future. You're looking at earthships. I really encourage you, I really, really encourage you to learn how much labor, work, and effort, and time goes into an earthship before you decide that's what you're going to do. Not because I think they are a wonderfully designed home. But you don't call up a contractor and just say, hey, I'd like you to bust out an earthship for me in 90 days. It just doesn't happen. Um, I think somebody should build a machine to pound tires, uh, to pound earthen tires. I think that would make the process. I think that's the biggest uh, time delay in building these things if you don't have a you know a thousand guys coming out to, to each pound a tire a piece for you a day. Um, there are people that have been building these things in, in these planned communities in New Mexico that take six to 13 years to finish one. Not that there's anything wrong with them. They last forever, for God's sakes. But that's the type of commitment you may be getting into. Uh, so consider that one first because it's going to change things, right? If you're going to build an earthship, well, hell, I don't need a, a septic tank. I don't need a water line. I don't need electrical. I don't need any of that stuff. So now I can buy land that's truly off-grid. Well, that's great until... You know, you realize how long it takes to build one, and are you going to live in an RV or a tent for that long? And where's your sewer, water, electricity going to come from while you're doing the building? Some of these people out in the desert here, man, they're just living in tents. You know, I mean, it's it's amazing what they're willing to do to build these things, but uh, make that consideration first. The next thing is, how much money do you have? That's going to be the biggest guiding thing on what you're going to do. How much money do you have now? What kind of income level do you have? And, you know, how much money are you going to dedicate to building on the property as well? And it, the more you spend on the land, the less you have to build with. So you have to ask those questions. Some of the big ones I, w I want you to think about, though, are not just how are taxes in the area right now for property taxes, but your best bet is going to find land that's unincorporated outside of any uh, typical township or, or, or city because that's going to lower your taxes right away. 
But what you have to look at is what is the potential for the closest township or city to annex the property in the foreseeable future. That's happened to a lot of people. They move someplace with dirt cheap taxes. That's why they went there. They're on the outer edge. They don't realize that that, that unincorporated area is bigger than they thought. They're inside of some little boundary. A bunch of people that live close to the city and town that want that for whatever reason uh, end up voting in approval of an annexation and all of a sudden they're part of the city they thought they would never be part of or the county or the town or whatever they that they thought they would never be part of they become part of it all of a sudden they get a new tax bill and it's three or four times what it was yesterday as though their property really increased in value that much now they're entitled to certain services that they weren't entitled to the first so that's your key advantage if you find an area that's small enough and sparsely populated enough that it would cost the county and township more to deliver services than they could derive in taxes they're probably not going to annex it It's probably too much trouble, especially if it's not a good place to put in a road. If they want to put a road through, they'll do it just to put the road through. So that, those are some things to look at. Um, the best thing you can probably do, though, is go to the survivalpodcast.com and search for bug out location. I've done an entire uh, group of shows on bug out locations. Look a few of those up because I get really in-depth into what makes property good for uh, a bug out location, good for a remote property and things like that. That's the best I can do for you in a short answer. Um, the big thing, though, is define the ideal property, every aspect of it for yourself, and take your time and look until you find what you're really looking for. And if you're when you're getting ready to make an offer, if your gut tells you the price is too high, lowball it where it's not too high. And if you don't get it, walk away and look for another piece of property. There's billions of acres available out there right now. And there's some really good deals in Florida right now. If, unless you're on some of the really prime premium areas as far as uh, coastal property. Florida real estate is probably in a better state for buying now than it's been in the last 25-35 years. So look hard and make sure you're buying what you want for your purposes. That's the best advice I can give you. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi Jack. Um, I'm calling in response to your show on suburban prepping. Um, I'm trying to make a bug out plan, but I think I may be like a lot of your listeners where security is my main concern. Um, I'm 41 years old. I have two small children to protect. I've never fired a gun in my life. Um, I'm working on that, but that's going to take me at least a year to um, get some training and uh, work on that. Um, I live in Arizona in a suburban area, and... I have floor-to-ceiling windows that can easily be breached. Um, as far as security there, I mean, that would be a huge expense to adjust that. Um, I don't own any land in a remote location, nor am I going to have the money to buy anything like that anytime soon. I don't have any friends who are former Special Forces members <laughs> that I can count on. My family lives two to three days' drive away, and they're also in urban areas. So um, for someone in my situation, what do you suggest? Um, if I do have to bug out, what would be the best plan? Um, should I buy an RV? Should I look at um, maybe renting something in a rural location at the last minute? I mean, that sounds a little nutty, but um, if I don't own anything and I can't get to another location, um, what would you suggest? Thanks, Jack, and I like the show a lot. 
Okay, and we've got a lot going on there. Let me see what I can do for you. I can hear the the the, uh, the concern in your voice, and your biggest concern is for your children because you're a great mom, and like all great moms, your kids are first for you. And you're concerned with security because of that, and, and as well you should be. Let's start out with your first statement that, that bugged me. Uh, I don't own a gun. I don't know how to fire a gun. It's going to take me at least a year before I can uh, get some training on how to do that. Um, I don't know why you're putting that limitation on yourself, but it doesn't take a year. It, it can take a week. Um, a good firearm, and I would suggest uh, getting both a handgun and a shotgun as, as a first step for you. Um, into your home with some basic training is a week-long process. Um, getting a concealed carry permit or you know, or feeling, feeling where you're trained enough to, to carry uh, may take a little bit longer than that, but basic safety operational training and the confidence that comes with owning a firearm can be a week-long process. Go go to a local gun shop and say, hey, I want to know, do you have any classes? Are there any classes around? I need a basics class. I need somebody to sit down with, uh, help me pick out a couple weapons, and I need to know exactly how they work, how to clean them, how to maintain them, uh, and st- spend some money to get it done if you don't have a, a personal mentor that can do that for you. Um, you don't need, and another thing was the special forces come, and I know it's kind of a side joke, but you don't need special forces to defend a home. Right, special forces you needed to, to invade a home because invading a home is a hell of a lot harder than defending one, believe it or not, uh, because the homeowner has an extreme advantage by knowing the area and being able to conceal themselves and wait on you because they're not looking to come out and get you. They're looking to make sure that if you come in, you go out horizontal. Um, the mental requirements to be able to use that weapon are something you have to work on personally, and they, you may not have that ability, and don't put yourself down if you don't. But I have a feeling that most mothers... Um, I could show them in five minutes how to use a handgun, and they may not want to touch the damn thing, but if their kids are in danger, they'll put a hole through a guy in about three seconds. And uh, that's just a fundamental fact of life. I've told people, if you doubt um, how strong maternal instinct is, go find a starving uh, woman in Angola with one baby all by herself, and you go be a 220-pound big man and go try to take that baby from her, and you'll end up uh, with buzzards picking your carcass in the middle of a desert. That's how women think, because they're going to protect, protect their children. So knock that out quick. Screw this year thing. I'm sorry. You're, you're, you're putting a limitation on yourself that doesn't have to be there, even financially. We're talking about if you go with just a shotgun and learn how to use that, um, you can probably find a, a local gun shop with a range that will teach you how to do that for a couple hundred bucks. You can buy a shotgun. So you're like $400. Um, and that will change things. The next thing I would say is if it's feasible, consider a dog. Um, I, I also want you to go back and I want you to listen to a show that I did. It was episode 489 called Security During a Breakdown, Lessons from the Colony on Discovery. And I talk about six methods of attack mitigation. And those are appease, impede, repel, evade, misdirect, and terminate. Terminate being the last one. That's where you actually have to shoot somebody. The big ones are impeding them and repelling them. And, and those are two big things that you can do with home security. Understand that you don't need to be prepared for the end of the world as we know it. That scenario is possible but not highly likely. Your bigger concern is uh, localized rioting and somebody you know trying to get in your house during that period of time or basic burglary. So these big windows that would cost you know so much money to put bars on, plant some bushes in front of them that are thorny and nasty and would slow down or impede the attack. Uh, get yourself a dog, and many times that alone will repel the attack. Um, 
I cannot recommend highly enough a, Ger a German Shepherd after my experiences with Max. Guys, this dog uh, has never been trained. When I got him, he didn't know how to sit. He didn't know how to stay. He didn't know anything. We've given him some very basic training. The instinct to defend a family in a German Shepherd is unbelievable. And I, I actually believe if we had small children and they rode this dog like a horse and pulled on his ears, he would never even snarl at them. But when anything is going on outside... Uh, he's immediately the most courageous creature I've ever seen in my life. A couple weeks ago, one of my neighbors decided to replace uh, the fence that borders both our property and didn't tell me about it. So they had all the panels down, and they were inside our property, um, this worker guy that he had hired to do the work. And I opened the door, and luckily for the guy, I walked out the door with the dog. Usually in the mornings, I just open the door and let him go out, get my coffee, and then come out and find him and do my morning walk through the garden. I just happened to be going out with him. And as soon as I opened the door, I heard growling, and the dog took off in a blind run. And it took me a second to absorb the situation. In about a second and a half, the dog had covered, I guess it's about 30 yards toward getting this guy toward the bottom of the yard. And I yelled, Max, stop! And he, he froze. His ears went back. His tail was out. And he was growling that growl that dogs do where it's not from their mouth, it's from their sides. And there were two Hispanic gentlemen working on this fence that both were as white as me or whiter instantly from fear. And I said, don't, guys, don't move. And I call, it's Max, get back here. And he came back and he stood by my side. And the dog looked like it, a trained attack dog. And I told him, no, they're okay. And I walked him down there with him. And all of a sudden, he was friendly and wagging his tail and completely happy. You would think this dog had gone through, you know, attack dog academy or something. Um, but completely friendly with the people once it was accepted that they were okay, that, 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 that we knew about them. Um, that kind of security is... Uh, You know, and what you get in return for it is a great big animal that puts hair all over your house and requires you to feed it every day and take care of it and take it to the vet. Worth every penny because the companionship that comes back is great. Even a couple little yippy yappy, you know, Pomeranians or something that'll run out and bark. Intruders don't like noise. It's their enemy. These are all things that you can do that are low tech, low expense. Uh, certainly intrusion alarms and things like that. Um, but number one, I can hear fear in your voice that doesn't need to be there. You're better than you think you are. You have more resources than you think you do. And you would be more courageous if necessary than you believe that you would. Whatever is holding you back from taking that step to empower yourself by being a, a, uh, a firm supporter of the Second Amendment by acting on it and defending your home with, with arms, go do it. Don't let somebody tell you, oh, your kids could get the gun. Teach them what guns are. Keep the guns away from them in a secure location that they cannot get to and tell them you do not touch them. Do not hide the fact that they exist from your children. Let them know what they are. I grew up in a house like that. I know thousands and thousands of other people who have. And know, you know it, it's always worked out better when kids are informed and instructed properly. Get the training. As far as you know, if you have to bug out, your family that lives in an urban area, Um, may be perfect to bug out and double up with in anything but the complete breakdown of society. And what's more likely? A, a regional event or the complete breakdown of society? A regional event. As far as an RV, might be a good idea if you financially have the resources. You're going to have to think about storage of it. Um, you're going to have to think about fuel. You're going to think about getting out. You're going to have to be willing to go when it's time, you know, before it's really time to go. Any bug out is going to come down to a situation where you make a decision. To go. And you need to make that decision 
before almost that you know before everybody else does for it to be effective. Otherwise, you're de dealing with clogged streets and, and what have you. Bugging in is a lot better of an option. I also did a show this week called Bug In or Bug Out that I think will be very helpful to you as well. So there's my advice. But I mean, the big thing is. Don't let those floor-to-ceiling windows intimidate you. That gives you a great view of who's outside, and if you learn the shadows in your home, it gives them a terrible view of where you're at. Uh, it gives you an extensive advantage. There's, you know, I don't care what you do to a home. Give me 10 seconds, and I'll get inside it anyway if I really need to. Uh, floor-to-ceiling windows, yeah, whatever. I don't care if you have small windows. As long as they're not so small that I can't fit through them, I'll get in any house in 10 seconds. The reason I wouldn't do it if I'm a criminal is what's waiting for me on the other side? One of the things you might really consider doing that would be a, a, an energy efficiency thing, I talked about this recently with security, uh, and a very really reassuring security issue is putting in solar screens. They're not very expensive to do. Uh, usually the people that will do them for you, if you hire it out, will come in and use your existing screen frames. They just uh, cut the new cloth and replace the cloth on your screen, screen frames. What that allows you to do is it cuts down the, the solar energy into the house and it keeps your house from being as hot in the summertime. But the other really awesome advantage is when you're on the outside, you see black. And when you're on the inside, it's almost like a two-way mirror type situation. You see out perfectly. Um, and what that allows you to do is you know what's going on outside and people don't know what's going on inside. But uh, really listen to uh, my security episode. Again, that was episode 489. Don't let it scare you because it talks about what to do in the extreme situation. Scale it back and understand that your main advantages are impeding, repelling, and misdirecting. Those are the three big ones for you to use for home hardening, uh, for home invasion. And... Uh, You have more than you think you do. Uh, you really do. Don't be afraid. Act in power. Uh, I guarantee you, you'll do what needs to be done if anybody ever threatens those kids. I can hear that in your voice. Let's take another one. I prefer my name not be used, but I've got 80 acres in Oklahoma, in the mountains or hills in Oklahoma. Uh, it's got a cabin on it, a well. That's about it. It's about 10 acres that is farmable. I was calling for suggestions on the way to go on making that a good retreat if you could please help me out I'd really appreciate it thank you okay starting out on this one I did uh, dis, uh, uh, did a little bit of editing on that one and took out the guy's first name when he said it he said hi Jack my name is and then I prefer my name not to be used so I took out that I I, I I want to point out something. If you call in and you don't want your name to be used, say your name's Tom or Bob or Phil or Susan or Debbie or whatever, uh, or don't say your name. But I also want to point out for some of the folks that are a little bit too sensitive with the identity protection thing, and I know I'm not at all because, well, I'm a public figure. It doesn't make any sense for me to try to hide who I am, where I'm at, or anything like that. It just doesn't. Uh, not if I'm going to be out here every day talking to you, and I don't think I'd have the credibility, but for the average person, I understand some OPSEC. But... If you tell me your first name in the in the state you live in, you've not created an OPSEC leak. Um, no one's going to figure out who the hell you know Tom in Michigan is. That's uh, I don't think they'd be able to figure out who Tom Smith in Michigan is. But Tom in Michigan, forget about it. So if you don't want your name given out when you call in, just don't say it or make one up as a first name, which I think is better because it makes it more personal. Anyway, what to do with your land? Um, you said about 10 acres is farmable. 
Uh, I don't know that I would ever farm it. I would look at more for any bug out location like you describe a permaculture model. I would try in the areas that are kind of past your fieldish to do as much gorilla garden self reseeding perennial crops as possible. Things like orach and amaranth, uh, onion and garlic, uh, wild varieties of those and, uh, anything else like that is probably a great idea. Berries, uh, nuts, fruits, uh, looking at doing some swaling and some of the more, um, The locations have more of a slope on them. Building, I would build that into the, the ultimate food forest if I had it, honestly. And I think that based on the way you describe it, you could probably do a tremendous amount with it. Uh, use your south-facing uh, areas that are that are rocky to plant things that maybe uh, are on the edge of needing to be a little bit further south and use that rock radiance to get them through the cooler parts of the year. Uh, and, and that, as far as a planting, that's that's the mainstay of what I would do. If you want to put a little garden or something like that in, fine. But unless you're going to be there often to take care of it, it's just not going to work. So maybe creating some places that would be immediately convertible to beds for gardens that are planted with some kind of perennial uh, that would be nitrogen-fixing like clover or something like that, and using them short-term as uh, food plots for deer or something might be a good idea as well. So some things like that. But here's the big thing. I mean, this is too big of a question to do on a call-in show and give a complete answer. Um, that's my basic overlay of, of, of planning because, you know, you mentioned farming, so I assume that's important to you. The biggest thing you can do with your bug-out location once you have it to get it ready for extended stays is go stay there. And uh, take as little with you as you possibly can. And then you'll see what you don't have and what you would like to have. And then write that down. And then don't go get enough of that when you run to town or to the store or to the lo local area to, to get those things by three or four times what you need for your stay. And stock them there. And every time you go, bring some more of those things to replace what you're going to use. And anything you don't have, keep stocking that up. And... I think that is probably the primary method you can use to properly stock a bug out location. There's no substitution for experience. Uh, whenever you're there, if the power goes out, don't, you know, if you have a generator, don't fire it up right away. Start thinking, what else could I do? It'll start to lead you to other ideas. Um, basically do everything you do in your home at your bug out location and do it more. Um, your, your home is where you're going to get through the short term. Your bug out location is where you're going to get through the long term. So if you're a 30-day uh, food supply at home person and you have a bug out location, you should probably be looking at four months uh, as a ratio. Um, for me, I've tried to push it close to a year of sustainability. We're not there. I'll be honest with you. We don't have a year of sustainability at our, our bug out location. But we have more than six months. And I'm at a point now where I've stopped stockpiling there because we're going to move everything we have here, which is about 60 days worth when we go. Uh, in fact, we're already starting to move some of the stuff, right? We're starting to get into that. We're going to be leaving here after Christmas mode. Um, stayed an extra six months here, folks. I didn't want to, but I love my wife, so I did it. Um, but that's, that's really the way to do it. It's the way we've done it. Every time we go up there, we go up there about once a month, I'd say, for a weekend or whatever. We just say, you know what? We get in there and we go, without drawing from our stores, what do we want this time? What do we want to have? And when anything's gone wrong, we've had power failures, and instead of firing up the generator, we figured out how to rig things up in the living room and actually get through a seven-degree temperature night with just the fireplace. And we've made it, the complications fun. And we've done a lot to improve the land so that when we move there, we can we can do some stuff that would be more considered farming. 
Um, but also, I, just like I said to an earlier caller, I think it might make sense for you to go to the survivalpodcast.com, type in bug out location, and listen to some of the more extensive shows I've done on this. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack, it's Carson from Canada. I'm listening to some of the back episodes, and I have a couple couple questions about things that you said you might expound on later on um, from back then um, that I don't recall having heard about. Uh, one is uh, why you have a bias uh, towards Ike and some of the connections that your family had with him on both sides. Um, I don't ever recall you going into that. Uh, the other one that uh, might be a little bit more interesting is how the British pound sterling uh, ties into the U.S. dollar and how it's the crutch for the U.S. dollar that you mentioned. Uh, that, that one's really interesting to me. Um, and I don't know if there's any other people that have listened to some of those back episodes and gone, hey, I'd like to hear about that, but I figured I'd let you know that I would uh, be interested in hearing about that. And that means there's probably at least a couple other people. Hope you have a great day. Bye. Uh, well, you really do listen, Carson. I don't know if you're driving in a car every time you call in or something, but you you have like like wind noise and almost some trembling in your voice there, man. Maybe you need to get stationary when you call or something. But uh, or it might just be how you know you might be out in the wilds of British Columbia on a sat phone. I don't know, uh, or a poor connection on a cellular. But anyway, you always ask great stuff. So you you obviously really listen to to even ask questions like that. I was kind of like, wow, man, this guy. Uh, he's pulling some stuff out of the archives and uh, and stuff I forgot about. Uh, the Ike thing. Let's 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 give you that one. My father-in-law um, was a child, actually a very young teenager, at the beginning of World War II, and his family uh, lived in Holland. And his father was a police officer, and his family became part of the underground, uh, you know, revolting against the Nazis as, as rebels and. His father was known by a code name named Cappy Marie, which of course was a woman's name, and because of that was able to do things to help get people out of the country and uh, provide intelligence to the Allies for most of the war uh, without being captured. Eventually he was captured. Uh, he was held prisoner by the Nazis. He was slated for execution. He was in prison with a Catholic priest. Um, they came to execute the priest one day and told him he was going to be taken the next. The priest had made a rosary out of um, threads out of the mattress and beads that he had made out of uh, rocks and dirt and things like that from having time out in like an exercise yard or something to that effect, and uh, a little tiny carved wooden cross. And the day that this guy was supposed, I mean, this reads like a, a novel, and it really is. There actually is a novel called Cappy Marie. Unfortunately, it's in Dutch, and we're having a hard time finding somebody that can translate it for us for a reasonable price. There's actually a novel about this man's life. Uh, my, my son's great-grandfather would be who this person is. And um, he, uh, he was actually liberated the day he was supposed to be executed. And he was later uh, decorated by General Eisenhower uh, for his contributions to the war effort and uh, had uh, has a picture. My father-in-law now has a picture of his father being uh, 
uh, having a medal pinned on him by General Eisenhower and uh, with the rosary uh, in a frame and the medal in a frame. And uh, that, of course, gives me an affinity for General Eisenhower because he's played a direct uh, part in, in, in that path of uh, the family that I married into. On the other side, my, uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was an uh, intelligence officer in World War II who served uh, directly under Eisenhower before being sent to the Pacific Theater where he served out the duration of the war working in Army intelligence. And he was a he knew Eisenhower somewhat personally. He had quite a few pictures uh, after the war of uh, social events that they had attended together. Um, so it's strange how a, a person with that level in history has crossed both sides of my family. So not really about survivalism, but you asked, so I thought maybe folks would, would want to know, uh, as you pointed out. On the other side of thing, the British pound sterling thing and the dollar, it, it's hard to understand, but you have to think about it this way. You have to almost go into conspiracy world a little bit and realize that the United States, especially in uh, the last century and up until the new century now, has become Britain's lapdog. Uh, whenever there's something that, you know, a, a country that needs to be invaded or a force that needs to be exerted that Britain just doesn't have the power to do anymore, guess who does it? The United States of America. And if you want your lapdog to be a good lapdog, then you need to make sure that he's in a strong position to do so. So his currency needs to be just strong enough to buy what he wants and just weak enough to create enough of an importation market uh, to keep his economy running. So what you do is you artificially control your own currency so that it remains right at about twice his strength. Uh, Britain actually benefits highly from a strong currency. They are a small nation geographically and population-wise. They do not do a lot of exportation. They do a lot of importation. Um, and they are a kind of nation where they're never, as long as they're, a, you know, they're no longer an empire uh, controlling you know, half of the world or anything like that. And in that situation, they need to be an importer. They, they, they can't produce enough for themselves, and they're never going to produce so much to export that it, it's advantageous. So the stronger the pound, the better for Britain. Now you know why the, strong, the pound has been kept strong. But if you make the pound too strong, you see, people really still look to the pound as the global currency standard. I know everybody says it's the dollar, but it's really not. It's, you know, if, if the pound went four times the dollar right now, it would cause a complete collapse and failure of the dollar. But it would be great for Britain if they didn't need the United States because it would give them more power. And with their smaller country and with still some attachment to commodities and by being smart and staying out of the euro, they could easily create a strong currency like that. They don't do it because they need us. So... I know that sounds a little bit conspiratorial, but you have to look at it. People have asked me this question, Jack, why is the pound worth more than a dollar anyway? We have more people, we have more stuff, we have more wealth. Britain is this little country that's, that's been in decline for, for 100 years. We're this big country that's been expanding for 100 years. Why is the pound worth more than a dollar anyway? Shouldn't the dollar be worth more than the pound by that you know, rationale? Well, look at a stock. Let's say I have a company that does a million dollars a year in profit, and I have another company that does uh, $5 million a year in profit. By that logic, you would say the stock in the company making $5 million a year should sell for a higher price point. Well, what if I only have a total of a half a million shares available for purchase and the company that made a million dollars, right? 
So their profit is effectively $2 per share, right? And then over in the company that makes $5 million a year, this company has issued 10 million shares of stock. So their profit is 50 cents per share. Now which stock is going to trade for more? And there's a lot of other things underneath the stock price, like how much growth is in this company sector, all this future projection stuff. But on the baseline, what is the, what is the price to earnings ratio has a great deal to do with how much an investor, especially in a stock that pays a dividend, is willing to pay for the stock. So the reason that the pound sterling is so much stronger than the dollar is there's a lot less pound sterlings per British citizen than there are dollars per United States citizen. That's how fiat money works. The more I produce, the less value there is in the individual dollar or pound or unit of currency. The less I produce, the less currency in circulation, the stronger the currency becomes relative to where it was before. This is why companies that are in deep shit do reverse stock splits. It just doesn't work as well with a stock because stocks live in the real world where it's really about what can the company do. It's still broke. It's still bankrupt. There's less shares. I don't care. You know, We're still unassing the stock at a, at a blinding pace because we're afraid the company's going to go under. But a country can artificially keep itself afloat and it can tax. A country always has income because it can tax. If it provides shitty services, it can still tax. So my belief is that Britain has, to its own detriment at times, kept the pound from running away. They've kept it strong, but not too strong. Just strong enough so they can buy anything they want in America at a 50% ratio. Uh, like you know, in my other business where we sell DVDs, we sell a tremendous number of DVDs to, to, to people in England. Because we sell a DVD set for 120 bucks, they buy it for 60, effectively, right? Because the, there's a relative currency value that's apart from a currency um, value across the board. So if you go to England and you have 50 pounds, it buys in the British economy roughly what 50 dollars buys in our economy, which means if you come to the United States with 50 pounds, it's like your 50 dollars is worth 100. So that's what I meant by that. I could go deeper, but not on a call-in show. Maybe I'll make the promise to come through this time and go deep into the inner workings between British and U.S. currency. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Skippy from Indiana. I just listened to your 500th episode, and in particular the topic of the solar storm that is predicted to hit in 2012 or 2013. And my question for you is, um, obviously, that may if that impacted telegraph wires, multi-telegraph wires, that would certainly have impact on electrical wires of today. But what else would that impact? Uh, meaning, in your house, would it melt the? Could it potentially melt? Uh, I know it's theoretical, but could it potentially melt? You know, the wires in your house, the electricity in your house, even. Uh, if you have alternative sources of energy, not going to work either. If you have solar panels and a battery backup, are those going to be rendered useless? Uh, things like uh, generators or propane-powered generators, would those be rendered useless? Uh, and then and then, the practical sense, what could someone do today as far as preparations to set up a system that would... Um, secure them from this type of impact or this type of storm so they can be ready 
on the other end from a, a power perspective, alternative sources of power, energy, and so forth. Thank you very much. Bye. Well, another deep topic. Let's see what I can do with that one. Um, <clears throat> number one, you have to understand why something like a telegraph wire or a high-tension electrical line or something like that on the grid would be likely to be fried by a solar storm. The, the wires themselves are acting like a giant receiving antenna. And if you can imagine a wire across poles running for miles and miles and miles of continuous running, if there's an electrical discharge from the atmosphere, are likely to act like a superconductor, a super uh, receiver. So a big satellite dish would technically be a better receiver than a small one. It, it will pull more of the available signal, in this case, electromagnetic radiation, which is a bad thing for the wires. Another thing to understand that mitigates this a bit is it's not like we didn't learn anything from this. And there's a lot better uh, of a grounding done to our electrical grid today than our telegraph system when the lines were fried. I'm not saying we're immune to this. No one says that. But it may not, you know, in many storms be as bad as we would think it would be. That said, we don't know how strong the storm will be. And that's really what it comes down to is the direction of the storm relative to the polarization of the atmosphere, uh, we've actually found out that either a south or north-facing storm can be devastating now, but a south-facing storm is generally thought of as to be more likely to be devastating. So that's the first thing that happens. Are we directly hit by the storm, or are we kind of skimmed by the storm? It's just like a tornado. If you're in ground zero, man, bad news. If you're skated by it, you get some damage and you're okay. Well, unfortunately for the Earth, the whole Earth is ground, if it's ground zero, it's ground zero. But we can kind of, the way that the storm comes out and its size and, and everything plays into this. So, you don't have to worry as much about the inner workings of your home, but it's not to say that you don't have to work, worry about them at all. Um, I guess the safest thing you could do is if we were right in the middle of one and it looked like it was really going to be bad, shut the power off to your property would be one thing you could do. Anything that's electronic that's grounded is going to be more likely to survive. So um, even things like hanging a chain off of a bumper of a truck and allowing that to make contact with the ground uh, is one way to discharge some of the absorbed energy into the ground and, and, and salvage all or a portion of that vehicle. I've even heard people say this. I don't know. I've never confirmed this is true, but you can actually have a chain that kind of drags the, the, the road. Uh, and, and be driving a vehicle and still get a grounding effect. I, I don't know that that's very practical. I don't know that you might not get pulled over for it, but now that I think about it, I've seen a truck or two with a little chain dangling off the bump or actually dragging the ground. I don't know if that was by accident or plan. Uh, I don't know how practical that one is again, but it's something I've read. Even things like putting in large metal sheds to use as garages and grounding the shed and grounding your vehicles inside the shed are a great way to protect against any type of electromagnetic uh, danger, uh, whether that be from the detonation of a nuclear weapon as an attack or from a solar storm. Uh, those are all some things that you can do. Anything that encases electronics in a surrounding metal container that's also grounded is going to uh, to be likely to uh, to help with the situation. Your home electronics are probably less susceptible to a solar storm than they would be to a true EMP attack because they work out a little bit differently with intensity and discharge. The big danger, and this is what the scientists say, in the solar storm are the satellites, satellite communications, 
the electrical transformers and the large electrical lines. Again, because they're out there like superconductors. Your home should get some protection from all the transformers in the system. As the surge comes upward and burns things out, it should stop at some point. I still think if we were going, like if they said this is going to be bad, I think I would cut power to anything in my home, uh, including the main circuit breaker, during that one or two hour period of time where we're expecting impact. Uh, how effective it would be, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know. But it all comes down to shielding and not being tied into something that's being fried. And understand that these solar storms are projected by everybody with, that's credible researching them to a, be the biggest threat to be those satellites and our main transformers. And we actually believe, and I don't know whether it'll work or not, but science believes that if we had to, if we knew it was going to be really bad, shutting down portions of the grid would be likely to salvage uh, the majority of those portions of the grid. I'm skeptical because of the... the uh, of what happened to the the, uh, the telegraph lines uh, during the storm in the 1800s. I'm very skeptical about that being effective. Would it save the transformers, the big transformer stations and all? Possibly, but I think it could do immense damage to the actual distribution infrastructure, the wires that transmit the electricity, specifically and, and, and really only to those that are above ground. If we lose a lot of that, it's a matter of how long does it take to bring things back up in the, in the, the aftermath. Most of the stuff in your home probably will be safe. I can't guarantee it. But again, shielding and grounding are the ways around that. And things like Faraday cages as well you can look up. Uh, for certain electronics, you want to make sure you definitely preserve. Uh, creating Faraday cages is very, very effective, which is basically just a screen cage that's grounded uh, and the material held within it. Let's go ahead and take another question. Jack, this is Ryan from Washington again. Um, appreciate the answers you've given. Um, I was curious, uh, you've seem to have switched over to all diesel vehicles, and a few years back I was considering doing the same thing and going to homebrew biodiesel. I was wondering what your opinions were about that as a uh, as a prep. Look forward to hearing your answer, and take care, man. Well, I seem to have, but I, I really haven't, but I've really um, extended our diesel offering, I guess. When I bought my uh, Ford F-350, which is a diesel, uh, and added that to the diesel vehicles in the house. The other one, of course, being the diesel Jetta. Um, I did not get rid of my Dodge truck. We kept that. That's a gasoline vehicle. There's a couple reasons we went with diesel. One was we were buying a vehicle for towing an RV, so diesel has an inherent advantage. It's also far more fuel efficient in a large vehicle, and we wanted a really large, robust, tough truck, not just for, for towing but for hauling, especially with the fact that we're moving. So diesel just did a better job. But prepping is a big part of why we did it, too. Diesel fuel is much more stable for long-term storage, especially now that they're dumping ethanol into all the gasoline, uh, you know, whether people want it or not. It's been federally mandated, and uh, it has ruined, not really ruined, but it has reduced the viable storability of gasoline uh, significantly. Diesel, properly stabilized, has uh, a really long-term storage life, and I think it's better for storage. So that's one of the reasons we went to diesel. It really wasn't about biofuel. In a world that where we get to where you need to run biofuel, the fact that we could do it 
is a huge advantage as well. Um, but it's more about the storage ability of diesel and the fact that diesel engines just perform better. They last longer. I see them as a better long-term investment. If I was getting rid of the Dodge and I was going to buy another truck, I would buy another diesel. And I would look to diesel in any any place that it's possible uh, is, is what I would go with. But it's my personal bias. I'm not going to tell you, get rid of your gas vehicle. I, I don't think that's practical for a lot of folks out there. But if you want a fuel that, that stabilized, can be stored for as long as, you know, five to even ten years in certain scenarios, diesel's the way to go. It's, it's a much more stable fuel than gasoline. It's specifically more stable than gasoline that's had ethanol added to it. And it does open a, a world of opportunity for what can be used as fuel. Uh, down to pure vegetable oil, which obviously in a uh, cold environment has a lot of problems with the fuel gelling and things like that. But there's things that can be done, and there is home brewing of, of biodiesel that can be done. It's not something I highly recommend for a well-tuned, brand-new, modern diesel engine, but should we end up in a situation where it's the only option, at least it's an option. Um, and it, it really comes down to performance for me. You drive a diesel vehicle for a while and you won't want a gas vehicle ever again. Uh, the performance relative to the input is, uh, is unbelievable. I can drive a diesel hard and get the same mileage that I get out of a gas vehicle that I drive gently. Which means if I drive that diesel gently, I can really stretch the mileage. Um, I drove my Jetta for a week the way that you would if you wanted to get maximum mileage out of it. It was hard to do. Uh, I have a heavy foot. I like to weave in and out of traffic. I like to use that car the way the Germans designed it to be used. But when I you know, kept it at or under the speed limit, used cruise control, controlled my stops, uh, took it easy when I'm going downhill like gravity, do most of the work, I pushed the mileage in that car for a week to almost 60 miles to the gallon. And I wasn't doing all the things like the people that do that, you know, at extreme levels do. 60 miles to the gallon. I mean, that's unbelievable. Uh, that could be done if it, we were in a real shorted situation. It ain't going to happen with anything other than a hybrid as far as gas goes. Uh, and then the power of the truck is unreal for pulling and for hauling. So that's why I went to diesel. Uh, biofuel is uh, nice to have extra. It's about storage, storage duration of the fuel and about the performance of the vehicles. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Darcy Menard from Gaston, Oregon. My question relates to the Salmonella egg breakout and the FDA Food Safety Modernization Act, that is S-510. I think the concern with some people is that the language of the bill uh, tends to increase frequency of inspection, uh, require small producers even to maintain records of preventative controls, and gives them the ability to increase assessment and collection of fees, etc. So instead of attacking the real problem here, which is the system in confined animal feedlot operations, they want to increase regulation that makes it prohibitive for me to sell my neighbors some extra milk or eggs. So my personal solution has always been to produce my own and tell others who can't to buy from local farmers, support the little guy. My question to you, Jack, should we be ignoring bills like this um, or barraging our senators? Uh, you know, maybe instead try to tackle the problems with our pocketbooks. Stop always trying to buy the cheapest eggs and support people who are producing responsibly. But is that enough? You know, as you said once, we have to pay attention, and I agree with that. So I'm not so much worried about them trying to prevent me from growing lettuce in my garden, but it's already 
pretty tricky for me to sell my neighbor some surplus milk or eggs if I have it. So is it worth the emotional capital of starting petitions and things like this? Just interested to hear your thoughts. Thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. Bye. Well, one of the more rational uh, questions about Senate Bill 510, uh, which is the Food Safety Modernization Act, and there's a similar bill in the House that I've ever heard. I get emails every day now, folks, every day from you people that are telling me, they're going to stop our ability to have home gardens. This law is outlining ho outlawing home gardens. No, it doesn't. It never has. It never will. Let go of it. Don't email me that crap because I'm not even going to read it anymore. Because if you're sending me that, you haven't read the bill. Because the bill doesn't affect home gardens in any way, shape, or form at all. It only affects commercial enterprises, period. How it affects them is by requiring documentation that's quite expensive to do, it's quite laborious, and it would probably have a very negative effect on the business models of a lot of small-scale growers, especially people that are dealing with, you know, one to 20 acres of property growing in the upper, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of the organic model and things like that. It does not make organic farming illegal. It doesn't require farmers to do things to their crops that would no longer make them organic. It doesn't do any of that either. Read the bill I have. Okay? Um, what the government's trying to really do here is to be able to track the distribution of food. So the fact that this would affect a farmer who runs a commercial enterprise, who, let's say, has a, uh, a great big strawberry field and a pick-your-own-strawberry operation, this would affect him. And uh, it would put an expense that he doesn't need to have, and it could put him closer to bankruptcy, which doesn't need to happen. It's not good. You know, it's just not what we need. Even though the government says that this bill is designed to help make food safe, it's not. The government has accepted the fact that there will be contaminations in the food system. There will be salmonella in eggs. There will be, you know, hepatitis in onions. That as long as we're distributing food, sooner or later something's going to go wrong. What they want to be able to do is when somebody eats that jalapeno that has hepatitis infection in, in, in Tallahassee, Florida, to be able to go, okay, where did this come from? And to know exactly where it came from and to be able to determine where all other food that came from that source is in the distribution system right now so we don't have to get rid of all the jalapeno peppers, just immediately pull all the jalapeno peppers out of distribution that came from that distribution source. And that's not a bad thing. But if a farmer that's running the pick-your-own-strawberry operation is selling directly to the consumer, well, if somebody gets sick from the strawberries, we know where it came from. So there should be, if they're going to go forward with this thing, there should be at least an exemption that says direct sale is exempt. Here's the thing. It's not the government that doesn't want direct sales. It's the food distribution system that doesn't want direct sales. It's the lobbyists lobbying against this. They're trying to get rid of a flat distribution system. They want the money to go through their distribution channel because here's the reality. In a typical distribution system where a farmer's growing strawberries and they're going through a multi-tier distribution system to a supermarket, if you track it back through, every single person in that distribution channel makes more profit than the farmer who does the most work and actually produces the product. That's why farmers want to sell direct. Because a farmer can sell direct at 50 cents a pound under what the supermarket is and make 20 times as much profit, even if it's a small segment of their business. Even most of it goes through distribution. This is what this is all really about. It's about the money-hungry people that are lobbying Congress and the Senate 
trying to consolidate their power and get more money. Most of the power granted in this bill to the government already exists. It already exists. The government already can do these things. It just exists in multiple departments, and this is consolidating under one department. I don't like consolidation of power either. But the reason to oppose this bill, it puts undue expense on small-scale growers, and there should be an exemption in the bill if they're going to go forward with it on growers under a certain size. And with that, the bill still sucks. I still don't like it, but it takes away 80% of its factor of evil, if you want to call it that. But this bill does not... Does not, does not, said it three times so you'll get it, because I'm tired of the emails. Does not, four times, affect your ability to grow a home garden in any way, or affect your ability to trade figs for apples with your neighbor. And the people that are making that jump are making a huge jump. They're looking for something to talk about. They're either misinformed or sensationalizing because they think it'll get them reads or views or whatever. Read the bill yourself. See what it means. As far as what to do about it, oppose it for the reasons that it's wrong. Make a few phone calls, write a few letters, petitions. I don't think that they have much of an effect, honestly. I really don't. I think nothing replaces individuals picking up the phone, calling those senators and congressmen and saying, you better not do this. The people to call are the ones on the committee. This bill is in committee. It's been in committee for almost three years now. It goes away and it comes back. And what I mean by going away and coming back is people talking about it. Everybody's going nuts like this is something new right now. This was going on two and a half years ago when I started the show. And people were saying the same things about it then. It's a bad bill, but oppose it for the real reasons, not the nonsense that some bloggers said about it. Um, and that wraps up this one. I do have one more thing I want to bring in today. And this is that audio from Peter Schiff. I want you to listen to this. This ties into the stuff that Peter was saying about the bond, U.S. Treasury bond market earlier uh, last week when I did a show where I brought him in at the end as well. Um, and it also kind of uncovers something I had never thought of, this incest game that the bank and the Federal Reserves are playing. And it shows us a hole in the economy. I won't say anything more than that. I'll come back at the end and uh, give you my expanded thoughts on it. But the other thing I want you to listen to is there's another guest on this show. And... Uh, I want you to hear the way he tries to talk over Peter Schiff. He just doesn't want him to say what he's saying. He wants he can't really object on facts, so he tries to talk over him. Listen to that, and uh, this came from the uh, Fast Money segment on CNBC. And again, I want you to listen to. I don't I don't know who this guy is. They don't say his name. Let me real quick check the video for you. Now they never say who this other guy is talking to him. Just listen to it, and, uh, and I'll come back and give you my thoughts on what this really means for us and why I thought it was important that we hear it today. Peter Schiff is standing by uh, with a point that he's thought up on our brilliant idea that the refinancing boom might kill his pessimism. <laughs> yeah, first of all, Simon, you, you have to understand, when you talked about the fact that a borrower, when he gets to refinance his mortgage, he wins because he has lower payments. Well, that's a zero-sum game because the lender loses. His cash flow is diminished by the same amount. Now, the problem is you've got all these banks that own these low-yielding mortgages. They're surviving right now because the Fed is making up the difference by giving them money for free. But when that bond bubble bursts and the Fed is forced to raise interest rates and all of a sudden rates aren't zero, but what if How they're about, 7%? But Peter, 
percent. How about the velocity of money? Hold on a second. I mean, you've got consumer spending. You got banks are getting money cheaper from the government. They're lending no. it cheaper. Money is turning to the systems exactly no, what the Fed wants. No, but you're missing the point that we are putting ticking time bombs on our financial institutions. They're holding 30-year paper <laughs> where they're yielding four and five percent, but they're borrowing money for nothing from the Fed. When we're, the Fed raises interest but your, rates, your assumption again is that the Fed is about to blow up. All no, we're talking about at some point in time for consumers, Wait, they have, they have more money to spend. Time. Let me finish my point. At some point in time, interest rates have to rise. And when they do, all the banks will fail because their balance sheets can't survive it. So we're setting up this well, explosion. You were probably saying happen. interest rates were going to rise you know, about but six months ago. Hyperinflation. So are you going to tell me that never, people said wait, we were going to five? Are you going to tell me... When are rates going higher? Is it impossible that the Fed funds rate can ever get back up to, say, 7% sometime in Not the next five or ten years? Not in my lifetime. So you, in your I, lifetime, in the I'm rest joking. of your life. Not, not anytime we soon. No. We have to leave it <laughs> Wait, there. I got to ask Peter. That's just ridiculous. Peter, yeah. stop. Peter, do you eat organic? <laughs> yes, I do. More I agree with money you. coming up. Okay, I wanted to finish with that today for two reasons. One, because I think Mr. Schiff's point is hugely important. Hugely, hugely important that we understand. And this is something I've missed. I've talked a lot about how right now the Federal Reserve is loaning money to the banks at almost no, no interest at all, quarter point. And that the banks are turning around and loaning it out in the form of mortgages at 4 or 5%. That's how they're making a profit. They're also loaning it back to the same government by buying U.S. Treasury bonds uh, and making the spread. That's what's making it affordable to loan money at 4%. That's the only way. You take your money and you split it into two places. You put half into cash reserves and half into your conventional mortgage market, and you make interest off of both of them, and your interest isn't really 4%. Or, or what the Treasury's paying you, it's somewhere in between. And it all works as long as I can keep getting my short-term money from the Fed at, you know, quarter of a point. Or if I'm a, a second-tier bank at, you know, uh, a, a third to a half of a point. I can make this work. Here's the problem. I can't borrow money from the Fed at the discount rate for 30 years. But I'm loaning it to the home buyer at the 4% rate for 30 years. And the longer the homeowner stays, the greater my risk that I'll no longer be able to afford the loan and make the spread on the interest rate. Because this money is flowing. The guy said, what about the velocity of money when he was trying to talk over him? This is what the Fed wants. They want the money flowing. But the money's not really flowing. The flow is an illusion. The flowing money would be going through the system and out into the economy, and that would be starting up some, some basic inflation that's actually needed at this point and getting the economy going again. But where's the money flowing to? It's staying in the bank in the form of cash reserves and being stockpiled in the bond market. And the bond market is very, very uh, bullish right now. It's a, it's a boom in the bond. All the money in the world is going into the U.S. Treasury bond market. And what Peter's saying is that has to pop. And when it does, the only thing the government can do then is start to raise the rates that they loan the money at to the banks, the Fed discount rate. And when that number goes up, then we see which banks are insolvent. Like Mike Gazer talked about which banks are going to go broke. Because the Ponzi scheme stops. And that's the next big blow to the economy. And there's another word in there that should scare you. The refinancing boom. Every time one of these economic geniuses want to say everything's okay, what do they say? Look at the boom in this. 
What have we always seen come on the other side of a boom, folks? We had a dot-com boom. What happened? We had a tech boom. What happened? We had a real estate boom. What happened? Now we have a boom in refinancing and bonds. What do you think's next? What do you think is next? If we don't study history, we're doomed to repeat it? Well, you know what? We're doomed to repeat history anyway. We study it so we can see it and react in advance. This is coming. That's the People have asked me, why do you see the second dip of the recession other than just not recovering? You know, why do you see an even bigger drop when we hit 7,000 in the Dow when we had the worst part of this recession and we propped it back up? If we go back, are we going back down? How can we go further? What's going to blow up? Everything already blew up. There it is. That's what's going to blow up next. That's the real heavy next blow to this, this economy. And shifts right, and the guy's talking over him. That's the other reason I wanted you to hear this. Did you hear almost the panic in the guy's voice? But, 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 right? Just whatever I can say to shut this guy up because he's making too much damn sense. I don't know how to oppose him and I've got too much of a vested interest in this. I believe this in my heart. It must be true. I don't want to hear anything that disrupts my paradigm. That's what you heard. Everything he said ignored the point. He said, can you see the Fed funds rate going back up to 7%? Not in my lifetime. I don't know who this clown is, but he looks like he's about 30 years old. And it ignores the fact that the paper the bank is holding on the mortgages is 30 years long. They've got to probably hold these things for about 20 before they can afford the increase because they've amortized it enough at that point. They can sell it off. They can do all types of things. Homeowners naturally turn houses over. But see, the other thing is, rates booming in real estate right now is refinancing, not buying houses. The longer people stay the more this time bomb ticks. Does that mean you should move and help the bank? No. Does that mean you shouldn't refinance and get the lower interest rate? No. But it does mean don't think the banks are all the evil guys. On some levels they are. But when they fail, we're screwed. Where do we get our money from? Where does your where does your company you work for get its money from? You know, you say, well, they make a profit. They don't just make a profit. Almost every business in America today is running a revolving credit line. That's how they make payroll. You produce something that doesn't produce a profit for three months. Very few companies run in a truly cash flow positive at all times. The place for debt is in business. That's where debt can be effectively leveraged because we can actually project, project income reliably. And we can project expense reliably. And we can see the profit. We can make that case to the bank and we can get the revolving credit. But when the big crash happened, that's what happened is all that money stopped flowing. That money really hasn't started flowing again. The money's not flowing out into the economy. It's going in a circle. From the government to the bank, back to the government, to the bank, back to the government, with a, with the, the, the individual homeowner refinancing for a lower rate and his debt being leveraged to buy more government security so the government can loan more money to the banks back to the government in a circle. And that's why the economy's not recovering, because this money's not flowing. And that's why if you look at the biggest companies in the world today, they're sitting on huge stockpiles of cash. They know this mess is coming. They know they need the cash reserves. The cash reserves have never been higher in the banks and in U.S. giant corporations than they are right now. It's supposed to be the worst time ever, and they're sitting on piles of cash. Why? Because any bean counter worth his salt can look at this and see what's coming. Peter Schiff just told you. So there you go. That wraps up today. So what do you do about that? Stay vigilant. 
Make sure you're not leveraging debt too highly. Do what these big companies and big banks are doing. Use stockpile cash reserves. Don't worry, inflation is going to eat away your cash. We'll worry about that when the time comes. Right now, we need to worry about when the cash stops flowing, do you have any? Cash is going to be king before cash goes downhill. Trust me, folks. And make sure you're doing the other things that we always talk about. Being prepared, having the, the resources that you need to survive if the systems of support fail. And make sure you don't become overwhelmed by these things. Realize how much power that you have, how much authority you have over your own life. Keep on acting on that authority and enjoy your weekend. I'll see you back here for another episode of the Survival Podcast on Monday. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. You don't have to live the way they tell you. Adios.